if you had been at Trinity last Sunday night, we reflected on the way in which the four gospel writers tell the story of the resurrection. Mark finishes quite abruptly and leaves you to make up your own mind. Luke and John have quite extended elements that are there to try and encourage us to understand what the resurrection is all about. And if you then expand that and look at what's written in the Acts of the Apostles and the letters, there are all these things that are there to try and help us piece together the reality of what happened and importantly what it meant to the followers of Jesus. And John does it in his own peculiar way. Um, John's gospel contains, in a sense, a lot less information about events and a lot more about what people were saying. And unusually in his gospel, he focuses his understanding of the resurrection through the experience of three people. Mary Magdalene, who we reflected on last week, Thomas, who we will talk about today. I don't know whether you'll be doing uh, Simon Peter next week. I'll leave that in Brian Appleby's hands. You're not. Advance notice, it's something different next week. But John uses these three individuals to try and help us make sense of the story. And I suppose when we look too to what we've heard from the Acts of the Apostles, we see that even amongst the Jewish community, there is this bubbling, trying to comprehend what's happening, almost trying to put the, the lid on things to try and stop things getting out of hand. And so this morning we're going to think about what these two passages say to us and how in a way they encourage us to live our lives as a risen community of the people of Jesus. So firstly, we'll look at Thomas. On our bookshelves at home, we have a series of, of three novels written for children under the heading of Emma's War. They're written by Louise's aunt, who was disappointed that when her grandchildren were in school and doing about the Second World War, there was no real stories for them to read. So being the woman that she was, she wrote these three stories. And it's interesting to read them because you see the way in which it's told through the, the eyes of these four children, which is, was the family in Canterbury during the Blitz. And there's a great phrase in it, where the youngest child, who in the book is called Jonty, that's my father-in-law John, the phrase is, Jonty's face crumpled with disappointment. And I know exactly what that means, because every time he was forbidden sweets or a pudding, that's what my father-in-law's face did. It crumpled with disappointment. Reading a story, in a sense, where you know the people brings it alive. And the danger when we read these stories, because we weren't there, and we don't know anybody who was there, we don't really understand what John is trying to do. Because the community who first heard these stories will have heard more, we assume, of Mary, of Thomas, of Simon Peter. They'll have quite an evolved picture compared to what we have. Which is why, when we talk about doubting Thomas, I suggest to you that actually we've got that wrong. I don't think John and his companions would have used that phrase to describe Thomas. It's the way we've interpreted him because of what little we know about him. If you scour the Gospels, you will find three references to Thomas. One is what we've heard, 
One is in the, the famous bit in John 14 where Jesus is painting a picture of the heavenly kingdom, what it's going to be like, and saying, you've got to follow the way. And Thomas replies with, Lord, we don't know the way. How can we know the way? And then if you go a little bit further back in the story of Lazarus, when Jesus waited and decides it's time to go then to Bethany and to meet with the family and to share in their distress, it's Thomas who says to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And so there are those, if you read commentaries, who will tell you that Thomas is a bit of a gloom merchant, prone to melancholia, because he always seems to see things on the, the negative way. They'll tell you that perhaps he was quite dull, not very bright, because he didn't seem to get things, because he asks questions. He doesn't really understand. But actually, that's a gross insult to Thomas, because the whole of the disciple band didn't really understand. They were all asking questions. Thomas, in a way, was no different to the rest. And then, just think about it. The disciples undergo this phenomenal experience. Jesus comes and stands in their midst, and they are amazed, astounded. They hear him speaking. They sense and know that he is there present amongst them, and for some reason, Thomas has gone out. He's not there. And he comes back into this euphoric picture of the disciples full of excitement and wonder, and I have to say, I'm not surprised that Thomas says, unless I see these marks, because when you go into something where everyone is so excited and you're not part of it, it's really hard to grasp what it's all about. It's not always easy to share that sense of celebration because you weren't there in that moment. So let's not be too hard on Thomas. Because I don't think he's doubting. What he's doing, which is a good, right and holy thing, is he's asking questions. Which, in a way, is what Jesus did in his ministry. What, in a way, he encouraged his disciples and his followers to do. Thomas doesn't disappear. He doesn't go away. He remains with the disciples. He lives for a whole week with the excitement of what they are going through, trying to make sense of it, because remember, these are exceptional events. And then when Jesus appears, it seems that then, in that moment, Thomas gets it. There's no suggestion that he has to go and put his finger in the holes or check that it's really Jesus. He knows, and you have this glorious exclamation, my Lord and my God, and it's one of the most breathtaking moments of the gospel, as Thomas comprehends. So rather than doubting, we need to call him questioning. Because this faith which we subscribe to has so much mystery about it, it demands that we ask questions. Think of one of our great central ideas, the notion of atonement, of Jesus dying for us on the cross. If you go to a theological library, you will find thousands of books written about what happened on the cross. People arguing various cases against each other, 
all in a sense knowing that there isn't a precise answer because all the theories have their strengths and their weaknesses. It is essentially a mystery. Understanding what faith is about, in a sense, is our life's journey. And how we understand will change, and who we are now is different to who we were 10, 20, 30, however many years ago. And Thomas, in a way, provides the model for us because he dares to ask questions. And the other thing we need to remember about Thomas that shows perhaps he wasn't this person who we looked into looking with a little bit of disrespect was the course that he then goes off to India. So that when the European explorers arrived in India, they found the Martoma, a church there, much the horror and surprise, really, that looked back to Thomas as the one who brought the gospel to southern India. That's not the attitude of someone who is doubtful or melancholic or whatever the phrase may be, who's not particularly bright. That's a sign of someone who grasped the vibrancy of faith and maybe by asking questions was more able in a way to respond to the, the demands of the community he was trying to talk to than some others might have been. He provides a really good example of what it is to walk the way of faith. He is in a way a hero of the church. And so it's really important for us to ask questions. Not to assume that the people at the front know all the answers, because trust me, they don't. Not to assume that the wisdom you will find on the shelves in Cornerstone provides all the answers, because trust me, it doesn't. We know from our experience that our faith is reflective of what we have been through, what we have heard, what we have understood. It is an evolving and growing picture that's built upon the importance of asking questions. So at this time of resurrection, when we are at the most exciting phase in the church's year, Thomas is the hero who reminds us, ask questions and of course seek answers because that's one of the most effective ways that we will grow closer to Christ we run the risk in a sense by asking questions that we get some answers that is in effect even more questions but that in a way is really important and significant because it shows that we are on the journey and part of the challenge that we should be presenting ourselves is to know more about who we are called to be, more about the Lord that we serve, the God whom we worship, more about the outworking of the Holy Spirit, and to ask these important questions. So that if you go back in church history to the, the Pentecostal revival that started in Los Angeles, I think it was 1904, in a place called Azusa Street, where a group of Christians came together read about the Holy Spirit and said, look, there are all these remarkable things happening in the Old Testament. They're not happening now. Why? And they thought and they prayed and they experienced the Spirit and in a way have refreshed the church in many ways because 
they dared to ask some questions. They were true inheritors of the baton that Thomas passes on to us. So let's dare to ask some questions. And then there's this story from the Acts of the Apostles. You know as well as I do that that Jeremy Corbyn is tying himself in knots over anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. There have been all these accusations and looking at a, a sort of dispassionate observer, he's not really dealt with it. And therefore the question, the stench we might say, lingers because he's not really come up to the mark and dealt with the reality. It is, in a way, typical of what's happened throughout our history. If we go back, we will see the way in which the Christians, the Europeans, have always looked upon the Jews with questions, with uncertainties. Our history is full of times when they have been flushed out of countries. And we know what happened in Germany. Anti-Semitism is a wretched thing. And the danger sometimes is we read the Bible and we perceive it as being anti-Semitic when it is not. John in his Gospel is quite harsh about the Jewish leaders. And that's reflected in this passage here from the Acts of the Apostles. We've got to remember the situation. All the excitement of Easter has happened. Pentecost has come and the disciples have been unleashed and have delivered the Christian gospel for the first time. And the Judaism of the day has been turned upside down. Synagogues will have been divided. Discussions in the temple will have been heated as people try and make sense of what they were hearing in the streets of Jerusalem. And what did the Jewish leadership do? They seek to suppress it. They seek to stop these things being announced. Hence the disciples are brought before the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council. And what Peter and his companions say to these men who were gathered there is, you've got it wrong. You've misunderstood the reality that's happened here in front of you. You are the ones, you the Sanhedrin, who took responsibility and sent Jesus on that journey that led ultimately to crucifixion. This is not an attack on the Jews. It's an attack on those in the Jewish leadership who got it wrong. The early Christians existed within Judaism. The Jews, of course, were under imperial protection. And for the first part of Christian history, that's where the Christians sat as a subsect of Judaism before eventually they were flushed out and brought into the understanding as a separate organisation and therefore persecution was unleashed on them in the most horrific ways that we can imagine. But at this moment in the story, what the disciples are doing is saying to the likes of Caiaphas and Co, you've got it wrong. This innocent man was put to death. And by suppressing the story, you're trying to protect yourself and your reputation rather 
than recognising you've got it wrong. And we know how tempting that can be for us. But what the disciples do do that's really important is they remind this group of men, this is the story we want to tell you. This is the reality that we are compelled to proclaim. That this Jesus who was put to death is alive by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit and that the invitation now to everyone is to see and hear and ask the question, who is this Jesus? I wonder what Thomas would have said 10, 20 years after the story that we heard if someone said to him, who is this Jesus? I wonder what the men in the Sanhedrin would have said 10, 20 years later with the way in which Christianity expanded at a phenomenal rate. How they would have responded to this question of who is this Jesus? And I suppose it asks us, who is he? And what does it mean? The disciples perhaps identify a couple of things in their reaction. Firstly, that they are out to denounce that which is evil. To name it and to shame it. But secondly there is also the, the desire to be prophetic, to be loving, to invite people to look and see anew what it is that they are talking about. And in a way, both stories remind us of the importance of expressing something of our understanding of the Jesus story and the way it affects us. to remind ourselves that we are called to be his advocates, called to share the realities of the faith that we've discovered with our questions, with our uncertainties, but to ensure that something of that is shared with the world. These days of resurrection remind us that this is a personal story for every one of us. They remind us that we need to grapple with it, to seek to make sense of it, to ask questions. They remind us of our calling to follow the Jesus who challenged injustice and who showed the way of love. There are the disciples in front of the great men of Judaism and they want to persuade them that Jesus is risen. They appear unconcerned about their own fate. The key thing is to share the good news. And there, in a way, is our continuing challenge. This Easter time... And all the Easter times to come, as indeed the rest of the year. How do we give voice to what Jesus has done?
for us. What would our story sound like? How would it allow others to engage with this great reality that's the heart of who we are, that speaks to us personally, that encourages us to be political with a small p, that invites us to embrace the way of love. Thomas looks at his risen Lord and says, my Lord and my God, and goes off on an incredible journey to share the good news that he has heard. Dare we look to Jesus to say, my Lord and my God, and dare where we live, where we spend our leisure, where we work, to risk talking about what we have discovered in the hope that others will hear, ask their questions, and come to know the Christ who is risen. Amen.